Well, that's wonderful music this morning. I trust that prepared your heart for our time in the Word as we go back to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1 and 2 today. Ecclesiastes, chapter 1 and 2. I asked Chris to read from the King James today because that uh, passage is one of the most uh, unique and uh, recognizable passages from the King James, uh, perhaps in the Scriptures. And I thought that might be uh, interesting to look at today. But I'm going to be studying from the New American Standard as usual, so uh, that'll be the translation we're using during the message this morning. About 14 years ago, some of you might recall, I got very sick. I had a staph infection that became sepsis and then it moves into toxic shock syndrome. And, and uh, for a little while, I thought I was going to die. As a matter of fact, the doctors were in agreement. And so at, at one point there, I thought to myself, this is what it is like to die, I guess. And as I thought about that, realized that this could be actually something that could happen, uh, I started thinking about whether or not, uh, you know, this is, this is my time to go. And I wasn't so sure I wanted to do that quite yet. I kind of talked to the Lord about that. I said, Lord, I don't think I'm, I've accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. There's so many things I still want to do. Uh, if this is your time, it is. But, Lord, there are so many more things I'd like to, to do yet in my life. And I, it gave me a perspective on life and death. As I considered that, the Lord apparently agreed and let me have these last 14 years with you. And I thank him for that. But uh, as we look at that, these types of things, these kinds of incidents often bring us to a place where we look uh, carefully at our own life, right? And we begin to realize that uh, no matter what station in life we are, whether we're young or old, healthy or unhealthy, uh, whether we're really moving up the ladder business-wise or we're way on the other side of the ladder, whatever, whatever station we are in life, uh, we really look at our life every once in a while and sometimes often and say, surely there's more to life than what I'm experiencing right now. Surely there's more to life than I know. I think most people feel that way at times, and, and they should, according to the book of Ecclesiastes. And when that happens, most of us simply follow whatever herd is in front of us. Uh, we, we see different trends and different herds and different groups of people, and we start following one or the other, or maybe more than one, looking for some evidence of life, something that we want to live for, and, and hopefully that will bring us great satisfaction and, and uh, joy and life itself. And so we begin to follow those various herds in one direction or the other. And that's what Solomon did. Solomon had all the resources to, to, uh, that he could possibly have to follow all the herds, to check, to check out every philosophy and every theory of life. He, he had at his disposal what most of us don't have. All that time, all that money, all that ability, all that wisdom that God had given him. And so he did. He began to follow all these different herds that were in front of him. And the passage we're looking at today is, is we find him looking at the four different herds that, that were out there in front of him and looking at them uh, and following them in his own life. We're going to look today at, uh, at three different journeys of uh, legs of the journey that he took, as he outlines them for us, three different legs of this journey. First of all, the life under the sun observed. You might add that to your notes if you have that. Life under the sun observed. He is going to observe life under the sun. And you'll notice as he starts talking about that in these verses, starting with verse 12, now, once again, let me remind you, life under the sun, as used by Solomon in this book, is a phrase that speaks of life here on this planet, under the sun, with no connection with God. What would life look like under the sun if God did not exist, or if God had no connection to us? 
and had no concern for us and no and we had it had no uh, interest in us whatsoever what would life look like for us if that were the case and that's what he's looking like looking at here life under the sun life apart from god as he followed began to follow these philosophies and look at that we find in starting with verse 12 that he began to follow one of the herds. Now I'm going to change the word herd to something else at this point. As I thought about this more and went over this passage of scripture more and more, I began to realize these are not just herds that people follow. These are what I'm going to call respectable idols. Remember Jerry Bridges wrote a very excellent book a few years ago called Respectable Sins. But these four idols are not sins in themselves. All four of the things we're going to talk about are good things in and of themselves. There are things that make life pleasant and enjoyable and good. Uh, they are special uh, gifts God gives most of us. And we appreciate them. And so we, we love them. But they can very easily morph into idols. And when they move from simply gifts that we enjoy to idols we worship, something has gone very, very wrong. And that is the tendency of all humanity to follow these gifts God gives us and bow our knee before them and make them the things that we live for. What's the first one? Well, the first one is education and knowledge. Very respectable idol for sure. Verse 12, he says this, And I, the preacher, have been the king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and to explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given the sons of men to be afflicted with. First of all, we'd mention under the sun, which comes up in verse 14, is found 29 times in this book. Under heaven, three more times. It all speaks of the same thing. And, Paul, and uh, Solomon said, I set my mind to seek. Uh, that word mind, if you have a, uh, many of your Bibles will have a little footnote there. That word mind is actually a, a Hebrew word, lib, L-E-B. And it's found uh, 14 times in chapters 1 and 2. And it's translated sometimes as mind, sometimes as heart, sometimes other ways. But it all comes to the same thing. I like heart, actually. Uh, he set his heart. It, it is a word that describes our innermost being, everything inside of us, our whole being, our, our intellect, our emotion, our will, uh, all that's inside of us, all that's in, immaterial within us. Paul, I keep saying Paul because I'm always talking about Paul. So Solomon said, I applied everything, every ounce of being within me, everything that I had, I applied to understanding life under the sun. I, I gave it my best shot. I applied everything. And he says that over and over and over throughout this passage of Scripture. And as he did, does so, as he devoted himself to this study, he came to uh, life under the sun in verse 14, and he says, I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. As, I, as I've looked at all the things that are there, and he's talking here about, about my mind and ex, to explore by wisdom. So he's thinking about education. He's thinking about intellect. He's thinking about wisdom in this section. He said, I did all I could, but when, it, when all was said and done... It was like chasing the wind. It was like vanity. None of it mattered to him. That's life under the sun without God. Uh, the most famous atheist today, I suppose, is Richard Dawkins. But the most famous atheist 100 years ago was a man named Bertram Russell. He was brilliant, and he really led a charge against God and the things of God back in his day. In 1927, he gave a very famous speech entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. 
And in that long speech, he said these, these things, among others. He said, in this world, we can now, this is 20, 1927, in this world, we can now begin a little to understand things and a little to master them with the help of science, which has forced its way step by step against the Christian religion, against the churches, and against the opposition of all the old precepts. Science can help us get over this cavern fear in which mankind has lived for so many generations. Science can teach us to look to our own efforts here below to make this world a fit place to live in instead of a sort of place that the churches in all these centuries have made it. Bertram Russell said, we don't need God. All we need is science. Science to the rescue. That was very popular in the 1920s and, and beyond. I remember when the uh, coronavirus got hot and nobody knew quite what to do with it. Uh, the government and, uh, and the different ones were trying to calm us down. And I remember seeing an ad on TV one time that said this, don't worry, settle down, science will save us. Science always has. Oh, really? How well has that worked out? I think right now we have left less faith in science than we've had for generations. It has not come to the rescue. It is not our savior. Uh, and it's all people like Russell and Dawkins and others have to turn to is science and our own wisdom under the sun. And Solomon said, I tried all of that and I came up empty. Matter of fact, in verse 15, he says, what is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be, be, be counted. Look, I, I, after all I've done, after all I've thought through, and all I've tried to fix, what I find at the end of the day is that things cannot, many things cannot be straightened, and there's more problems than I can count. And isn't that true today as we keep, see things multiply and the issues that we're facing today? In verses 16 and 17, what did he do? What did he do? Well, as all good educated people do, he doubled his efforts. He said in verse 16, I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. And my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and, not, and to know madness and folly. And I realize this too is striving after win. He said, I, uh, it hasn't worked out so far, but I'm just going to keep on doubling my efforts. It's like the guy on the interstate that knows he's going the wrong direction. But uh, he speeds up because he wants to make good time, even though he doesn't know where he's going. That's where Solomon was at at this point. He knew he was going the wrong direction, but he couldn't believe that all the brilliant thinkers around him, all the philosophers, all the educated people that were in this herd, all these PhDs, all these people that have written books, all the people teaching at the cream of the crop university, the Ivy League universities, how could they be wrong? How could all these people be wrong? I've got to follow this herd of educated and wise people. But when he got done with all this effort, in verse 18, here's his conclusion. Because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. What I realize is that the more I know, the more painful life is. Uh, I think many people today are miser in misery. And our world system is calling for a mental health crisis all over the globe as people are going into depression and drug overdose and, and alcoholism and all these various things to try to escape some of the miseries they have. 24-7 news outlets are out there. If we can't get enough on 24-7, we can do our podcasts and 
and, and we can do our uh, other media outre outreaches. And all day long, every moment of every day, we can turn to something else to make us miserable. Right? Are you enjoying that a lot? Maybe some TV shows should be turned off and some podcasts should be wiped out and some iPads should be put away and have a conversation with somebody. I don't know. Maybe that's a weird thing. I don't know. But Solomon said, the more I learned, the more miserable I was. I couldn't fix everything. I couldn't count everything that was wrong in this world. Now, I want, to, I want you to note something. Solomon, at this point in his life, he's an old man now. He has forgotten something he once knew that has led him to this place of despair. I want to show you why I know he once knew it. Go back to Proverbs chapter 1. Solomon is also the author of most of the Proverbs in our Bible. And he makes two statements we'll mention here quickly. Number 1, verses, verse 7 of chapter 1. He says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then chapter 9, verse 10. He said, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. What did Solomon forget about as he grew older? He forgot that the beginning, the very basics, the very foundation of all true knowledge and all true wisdom is the fear of the Lord, the right understanding of God. He lost that. Now going back to Ecclesiastes, if you pop on over to the last chapter, I want to give you some good news. We're going to read the end of the story. All right, you like to read a novel and read the last page, see if they lived or not. Well, look at verse 13. Solomon comes back to that which he had lost along the way. And look at his final synopsis, his final conclusion, verse 13. He says, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. He found it once again. And we'll come back to that later to understand in fullness exactly what that means. But he had, he had detached himself from the God of the universe. And as a result of that, he was living in despair under the sun. Let's go back to chapter 1 now. If education doesn't work and wisdom doesn't work, maybe fun will. If the uh, educated people are wrong, the philosophers are wrong, maybe the playboys are right. And so he comes to chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. Let's have a good time. People seem to be laughing themselves silly, so maybe I'll try that as, as well. So verse 3, he said, I, I explored with my mind, my whole being, I explored this. How to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. This wasn't mindless. And, now, and how to take hold of, of folly until I could see what was good. There is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. And so I'm going to have a good time here. I'm going, to, I'm going to live it up. I'm going to try laughter. I'm going to try alcohol. I'm going to have the good times the best I possibly can. If the philosophers brought me to misery, maybe just having a good time will bring me joy. In 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, uh, we get a picture of Solomon's party life. In that passage of scripture, it tells about all the food he brought to his banquets every day. Enough food, some have said, to feed 30 to 40,000 people. That was, a big, that was a big party. And he had one every day. He couldn't get enough of the party life. 
and he could afford it, and he did it. Solomon tried every pleasure known to man and came up empty. The playboy life didn't help either. Look at verse 1 again. And behold, it too was futility, and I said of laughter, it's madness and a pleasure. What does it accomplish? Like many other people who go, many people who go home from a party or from a good time having laughed all evening and had a lot of fun, they go home, they sit in a chair, and suddenly they realize this didn't satisfy. I'm, I, I might have had a good time for an hour or two, but, but I'm unhappy. I've come to the end of my rope. It did not provide what I thought it would. So if wisdom didn't work and fun life, party life didn't work, he moves on to achievements. Here's the third herd, or the third uh, respectable idol. Achievements. And this is very respectable. Very respectable. Verse 4. He says, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. And I made ponds of water for myself for which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. So I, I accomplished much. Don't we appreciate people that accomplish a lot? Keep in mind, these are not sinful things. In their place, and he talks about everything in his place in chapter 3. In its place, these are wonderful things. Don't we appreciate people that build companies that provide jobs? Don't we appreciate people that, that had the foresight to, to set apart, apart national or state parks so that we can enjoy them today? Don't we appreciate the accomplishments that, that we find throughout our world of, of people that are achievers? Achieving is not a wrong thing. It's not a bad thing. But when we begin to make it our idol, that's what we're living for, that's what we bow our knee to. It always leads to despair. In First Kings chapter 9 and 10, we see just how far Solomon took this one. We find there that he, he had great building projects. We find in that passage, he spent 13 years building his own house. Now, some of you who are trying to do a remodeling job think you took 13 years to do it. But you probably didn't. He built a palace. It took him 13 years. It only took him seven years to build the temple of God. It took him twice as long to build his own house. And then he built a palace in the forest of Lebanon. Not even on Israel's property. And then he had another house for his favorite wife, the Pharaoh's daughter. Now, I don't know if he liked her or not. Remember, he had 700 wives. Right? He kept Hallmark in business for years. You know, can, you imagine, can you imagine that? But Pharaoh's daughter was very important to him because that was the other great power of the times. So he built her, her own palace just for her. And then he also built six cities in the wilderness. His projects were endless. And yet when it all said and done, he's just as miserable as before. One of the key words here, of course, is myself. I built for myself, time after time for myself. And you'll find if you really get down to the motivation of most achievements by most people, they're doing it for themselves. Well, why do they want to keep doing what they're doing for themselves? Why are they building empires for themselves? They want their name known. They want a legacy in the future. And that was part of his problem. But if none of these things are working for him, he wanted to go ahead and try wealth. Chapter 2, verse 7 I brought male and female slaves, and I had home-born slaves, and I had process, uh, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. 
I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men and many concubines, and I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. Although my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of my labor, and this is a reward for all my labor. And so now he begins to amass great wealth. This is perhaps the most common of all the respectable idols in the world today and ever before. People will do almost anything for more money. The ditty that says, follow the money, and you know what's going on, is there because it's pretty much true. You follow the money, and you see why people live. You follow the money, and you see why people will destroy their lives, will disrespect their families, will hurt their reputations, because they get more money. We see it all the time. And on a, on a much smaller level, we find people make choice, making choices about where they live and, and their jobs and their future and, and all these things on the basis of money. People will, people will not spend time with their families in order to work more and make more money. People will move away from loved ones and friends and so forth because they can make a couple more bucks an hour. Money becomes our respectable idol very easily. In 1 Kings chapter 10, Verses 14 to 29, we see just how wealthy Solomon was. He, everything he looked at, he owned. And he looked everywhere. Everywhere he looked, he wanted it. I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that. And he could buy it, and he had it. Reminds me a little bit of a quote I read about Elvis Presley in a book, uh, biography about Elvis. He goes to his former pastor at the very height of his fame, and Elvis said to his pastor, I have money, I have fame, I have fans. Why am I the most miserable man alive? Pretty good question right there. Too bad he didn't listen to whatever he was told. In verse 11, for a while these pleasures and possessions pleased Solomon, but eventually the novelty wore off and he was disappointed. Verse 11, thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there is no profit under the sun. He had chased down the four main herds. He had bowed his knee but to the four main respectable idols. And when the dust had settled, he discovered something that all of us need to, to discover, that these four things we're talking about can be great gifts from the hand of God, but they make lousy masters, wonderful servants, Horrible masters, and were never meant to bow the knee before them. And so we've seen life under the sun observed. Let's take a moment here to look at the life under the sun analyzed, the second leg of his journey. After many years of these experiences, after trying out all these respectable idols, following every herd, he comes up empty. But Solomon does something now that most of people never take the time to do. He, uh, he decides to think about it. He decided to analyze the life he was living. In uh, the book Walden, the classic book by Henry David Thoreau I mentioned last week, he had a little myth in the story. He said on the lake there was this, this chest, filled with, apparently filled with chest, uh, treasures that was at the bottom of the lake. But every once in a while the, the, the local people said it would float to the top of the lake and move towards the shore. 
and people in boats would go to try to chase it down. But every time they got near the treasure chest, it sunk again and disappeared. That was the story of Solomon's life. That's the story of most people's life. We're chasing after some dream, some treasure chest, and just about the time we think we're there, it disappears. I think the average person who comes to the place where Solomon does simply gives up. Some go into despair, some go get suicidal, some do other things, but most people just sit in front of the TV set and kind of numb out. Or they fill their lives with so many things to keep them busy that they don't really have time to think. They get all involved in, in every sport they can find, in every sport on television. They, they close their eyes to, to the things around them. They, they get busy with work or other activities or travel or whatever it might take to keep their minds away from thinking and analyzing how they're actually living life. But Solomon had to find out. Solomon wanted to know what's wrong here. What's going wrong in my life? What's going wrong with life under the sun? And so he began to analyze these respectable idols. Let me, let me give you a, a fourfold step downward with these idols. Number one, they always entice us with their brilliance. They always entice us with their brilliance. They look wonderful. They promise, though, what they cannot deliver. Secondly, they lose their shine in, in due time. And they grow dull, and we move on to another idol or another thing. Thirdly, they disappoint us, and we come to the place where we don't know what to do beyond this. Solomon discovered that these idols were not designed to give life. They were designed to press us to the heart of God. They were designed to make life sweet and good if used properly. They were not designed for us to live by. And then finally, we recognize that these idols will lead us astray. Idols are designed to lead us astray from God. That's what they do. And that's what they will do. I'm reminded of a song that Simon and Garfunkel wrote years ago called Patterns. Nobody sings it, but, but they sang it. And here's a line from that, that song that Simon wrote. He said, from the moment of my birth to the moment of my death, there are patterns I must follow. Just as I must breathe each breath like a rat in a maze. The path before me lies and the pattern never alters until the rat dies. Boy, that's wonderful stuff to think about, isn't it? Now, you're a rat in a maze and you're going to keep on doing this till you die. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel had some interesting thoughts, but they were right on top of where most people live. So let's take a look. He, he, Paul, uh, Paul, uh, Paul, Paul's good friend Solomon, uh, <laughs> revisits education and wisdom. In verse 12, he gives us for the first time some good news. You want to get some good news? Somebody says yes, okay. So, verse 12, I, so I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly, for what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? And I saw the wisdom exceeds folly as light exceeds darkness, and the wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness and stop there. Solomon said, it, I have observed it's better to be wise than to be foolish. Why? Because the wise person, even without Christ, will make their life much easier, much less complicated than the foolish person. The uh, partier uh, is, is doing just fine 
uh, until their life caves in on them. The, the spender does all right until the bills come due. The immoral person thinks they're doing fine until they get an STD or an unwanted pregnancy or their, their spouse finds out. Solomon had said also in the Proverbs this, great verse of scripture, one we all should know, Proverbs 13, 15, he said, the way of the wicked is hard. Life is hard to begin with, right? Often. But the way of the wicked, why? Because the sin complicates life. And the way of the wicked is hard. So Solomon is saying, look, it's better to be wise than stupid. (laughs) It's better to be wise than follow folly. So that much I've seen. But here's the bad news, I'm sorry. The bad news is verse 14, the end. And yet I know one fate befalls both of them. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been so extremely wise? And I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool. And as much as in the coming days all will be forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool alike die. Solomon said, here's the bad news. We all die. <laughs> Solomon, his little trips through the cemetery were killing him. You know, literally. He, was, he, he couldn't get over the fact that no matter what he had and no matter how wise he was, he too would die, just as the fool would die. The death is the great level, leveler of life. We die. And Solomon couldn't get over that. What prophet, he says, under the sun does this give me at this point? And he says in verse 17, he says this, So I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything is fertility and striving after when I hated life. Another great philosopher by the name of Voltaire, the French philosopher, uh, came to the end of his life, this godless man, and here was his final verdict on life. Life is a bad joke. That's where Solomon is. I hated life. What a bad place to be for a child of God. So he revisited wisdom. And it came up empty. So now he revisits folly. Let's just take a look at, at, at fun. Look at verse 2 again. I said of laughter is madness, of pleasure, what is it, does it accomplish? Verse 13, I saw that wisdom exceeds folly as light exceeds darkness. Wisdom might be better than just folly, but it still it ends up going nowhere. Go over to chapter 7, verse 6. He gives a beautiful picture of this. 7, 6 says this. For as the crackling of thorns under bushes under uh, crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool, and this too is fertility. This momentary noise and sound and heat. The other day we were in the backyard at our little outdoor camping fireplace thing and uh, with the grandkids and we were having a little fire and we had a bunch of limbs that had leaves still on them and we threw them in the fire and it, they crackled and, and flamed up about ten feet up in the air. It was so exciting for 10 seconds, and then it died down again. Then we threw some more on. They, they did the same thing. It died down again. Momentary joy, but lasts only for a brief time, and then it's bankrupt. He hated life, verse 17. And then he, he revisited achievement and prosperity in verse 18. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor. And starting with verse 18, this whole paragraph, he will mention labor... Uh, 11 times or more, and also he does uh, about four times in verses 10 and 11. So he's talking about what he uh, tried to accomplish. 
He said in verse 18, I hated all the fruit of my labor which, is done, which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to a man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. And yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor which I labored under the sun. He, he said, I, I despaired. And, and if I leave a legacy, notice the word legacy in verse 21. Where, where there, when there is a man who has labored with wisdom and knowledge and skill, then he gives his legacy to, to one who has not labored for them. This too is vanity and a great evil. I'm going to leave all my stuff to my kids. I'm going to work hard, save up, leave it to my kids. Or I'm going to leave a, a dynasty behind, a, 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 an empire, a business, or whatever. I'm going to leave it to someone else. But he says, as I, as I thought about that and I considered that, I began to realize that, that I do not have any idea or any control over what my descendants will do with all that stuff. I don't know if they'll be wise or if they'll be foolish. And we know, Solomon doesn't know this, but we know that his son was foolish. Rehoboam ripped the, the kingdom apart by being a fool and, that, and the kingdom never truly recovered ever. It's never been united together even to this day and it will not be again until Christ returns. His son was a complete fool and wasted all that he had gained. Solomon said, I don't know if that's going to happen but we know it, it happened. And then he began to look around, verse 22, says, What does a man get in all of his labor and his striving which he does under the sun? Because all of his days his task is painful and grievous, even at night. His mind does not rest. This too is vanity. He said, I can't even sleep because I don't know what the future might hold. I can think of nothing more disappointing than to think that you have built something good, that you've left behind a legacy, you left behind something really good, to, to find out later that all of it is wiped out. All of it is destroyed. Solomon is an example to all of us of life under the sun. Here's a takeaway so far. What are you striving for? What are you living for that will endure the test of time? Now let's, let's look at this final leg very quickly. Life under the sun, it's design. What is the design by God of life under the sun, the final leg, verse 24 to 26. Let me, let me, before I read those verses, let me say this. It's been said that which cannot, that we cannot change ought to change us. I think those are wise words. Solomon ran into three things he could not change. And these are three things you cannot change. Let me tick them off for you. Number one, he became aware that the enjoyment of physical pleasures and achievement do not last very long. Joys, pleasures, and achievements have a shelf life. They're not eternal. They do not last very long. Number two, he realized that death comes for all of us. That we all are going to face death ultimately. And thirdly, he realized that he has no control over the future. You cannot micromanage the future. These facts ought to drive us to despair or drive us to God. The purpose of this book is to show us the despair of life under the sun, that it might drive us 
to God. That's where he's taking us right now. I believe the Lord has made life this way, not to confuse us, but to push us to a life that's better and higher. And as I was thinking about this sermon today, I was thinking, does this apply to everybody I'm going to talk to this morning? I mean, there's a lot of different people here, different age brackets and so forth. And I thought, you know what? The, for the young people here, you teenagers and young 20s, um, if, you, if you would pay attention to what is being taught in Ecclesiastes, your whole life could be set in the right direction. You don't have to follow this folly. You don't have to follow this, these, these respectable idols and these, these herds to the wrong direction. You don't have to come to a place somewhere later in life when you despair. Because right now you could pay attention and set directions in the right direction. And for the middle-aged people here who have maybe gone down that road for a while and you're, you're looking back now and you realize that uh, Solomon's pretty accurate. You've chased a lot of these herds and you've come to a place now you realize these do not give us what they promised to give us. And I'm at a place now where I'm going to have that obligatory midlife crisis. Now, you just got to have one of those, you know, in America. You got to have a midlife crisis. No, you don't. You, you could, by, by the teaching of Scripture, you can say, wait a minute, these things don't push me to despair. I don't have to go out and buy. Uh, I'll, I'll skip that part. I, I don't want to offend too many people. Come to me later, I'll give you some names. But uh, I don't have to do that because the Lord can spare me this midlife thing because I've come to the place where I realize this is not life without God. And how about you old people? Well, I don't, you say, well, which ones are us? Well, I'm going to be careful here. But let me say this. If you got excited about the cost of living increase for Social Security last week, uh, you might be old. Okay? You, you think about that. Or you say, well, I've kind of followed Solomon's steps. I've been kind of foolish throughout my life, and I've, I've lived, lived a lot of the things he lived. What am I going to do now? You can readjust your attitude and your thinking and your, develop, your, your goal of living for God and you can, you can live your final days at rest with Him. This is applicable for every age and every area of life. Having said all that, I want to come back to our passage. Kind of a little bit of overview from last week, but a little more. There's, three, there's some truths. There's three hard-hitting conclusions that He draws us to at the end of this chapter. Having brought us to all this place of despair, he says this, three hard-hitting conclusions. Number one, the enjoyment of life is a gift from God. Verse 24, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and to drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that is from the hand of God. So I want to be real clear on all the things I've said today. These are respectable idols, but they're also gifts from God. None of these things are wrong. Every one of these things have their place, if God wills, in your life. And you can enjoy them, and you can appreciate them, and, and they can make your life sweeter and happier. But not if you bow your knee to them. Only if you use them as they were intended to be used, as a gift from the hand of God that you worship. Second conclusion. The enjoyment of life cannot be found apart from God. And the enjoyment of life cannot be found apart from God. Verse 25, for who can eat and who can have enjoyment without Him? 
The preacher would testify, it doesn't matter what you have, doesn't matter what you've accomplished, doesn't matter who knows your name, doesn't matter any of these things. Life without God has no lasting enjoyment, and that is by the design of God. That is God's plan. Number three, the enjoyment of life is conditional. Verse 26, it's conditional. For a person who is good in his sight, he is given wisdom and knowledge and joy. While to the sinner, he is given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. This to his vanity and striving after win. He is saying that the good life, the life God wants you to have, is conditioned upon pleasing God and living in obedience to him. That's not quite enough, though. There's something more to be said that will be said later by Jesus. And I want you to go with me to John chapter 10, verse 10, as we close out our day together. Everything that Solomon strived for, everything that everybody on this planet strives for and comes up empty in and of themselves is given to us as a gift by Jesus Christ. John 10, 10. I've came that they might have life and have it abundantly. You see, uh, this life drives us to a place where we recognize we cannot, in and of ourselves, find life that we want to find. And the Lord says, I've come to give life, eternal life, blessed life. Life is absorbed in Christ himself, abundant life, life overflowing, a life only he can give, and is not earned, it's a gift. If you do not know Christ is your Savior here today, he offers a gift of eternal life. He offers to forgive your sins and make you the child of God. He offers you to, to give you true life. He doesn't offer to make life perfectly easy. He doesn't offer to take away all your struggles, but he offers to give you a life in connection with Almighty God for now and forever. And it's a gift that you receive only by taking that gift, trusting him, believing in him, and receiving that gift. It's not earned. It's not found. It's given through Jesus Christ. It's yours if you come to him. Join me in prayer. Father, we are grateful for this book. It, it, at this point, it kind of leads us down a, a sad trail, but then it ends with the truth that life can only be found in you. And Lord, we're so glad to be reminded of that time and time again. So we pray that this passage of scripture will speak to the heart of everyone here as it needs to be spoken to. In Jesus' name, amen.